last Sunday, uh, we talked about uh, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and so we're continuing that uh, conversation this week, talking about serving. We serve in the church with the last week we talked about with our time, talent, and treasure. Uh, this week, we're talking about serving our world. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. A couple of verses there we'll look at, verses 14 through 16. And uh, as you do that, I'm going to lead us in prayer. Would you join me asking for the Lord's help? Uh, we sang, Father, a moment ago that the face of Christ would be seen in all we do. We want the face of Christ to be seen by the world. And so, Lord, we want to take the exhortation from your word this morning. We want you, by your spirit, to apply it to our hearts and minds and, and lives. Make us more like Jesus. And so we know that that is accomplished through proclaiming your word. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of doing this. Uh, I don't take it lightly. Um, and I know that any good that's going to be accomplished this morning will be the result of your Holy Spirit. So we're asking you to work. Illuminate your word to us. Give me, uh, give me words. Guard my tongue. And uh, would you uh, give us all uh, receptivity of mind and heart uh, so that we take, uh, take in what you are feeding us. Be glorified, Lord Jesus, in this. Father, we pray it in his name. Amen. Our church's mission, and I've been saying this over the last several weeks, our church's mission is leading people to become fully devoted followers of Christ. And in the sermon series, we began this year, at the beginning of this year, we sought to answer the question. The question is, what does a fully devoted follower of Jesus look like? These marks of discipleship uh, both define what we are to be and do, but they also define what we seek to build in others. That is to say, when we think about our own mission, we think about these marks of discipleship. What do we want to see happen in the lives of, of those we're ministering to? So both for ourselves, but, both, but also as, as it regards how, what, what effect we, we hope to see in the lives of those we're ministering to. So just as a reminder, a fully devoted follower, a disciple of Jesus, is someone who identifies with Christ and his church. That identification is important, and initially in baptism, but we've been making the case uh, that it also is, is, uh, is evidenced in joining a local church where there are other believers who know you in, and can affirm uh, your faith and whose own faith can be affirmed by you in the collective. That's important. Secondly, a fully devoted follower of Jesus gathers, so we're here this morning, this is an expression of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that we're here. So let me just say to you, if you're, uh, if you're sitting at home perfectly healthy in your pajamas watching me now, you're in the wrong place. Okay? Next week, want to see you here. If you're healthy. Now, if you're not, I understand that. And there's some members that are shut in and they can't go anywhere. But listen, if you're healthy, gathering is vitally important. You can't do one another if you're not with one another. So, Gathering. Uh, thirdly, uh, a fully devoted follower of Jesus becomes like Christ in character. So, so we imitate him. We imitate who he is and how he behaves. That's, that's vitally important. Four, this is what we're dealing with this week. A fully devoted follower of Christ serves the church and, that's what we dealt with last week, and represents Christ in the world using what the Lord has entrusted to us, time, abilities, 
and resources. And like I said, last week we talked about serving one another the church. But our, our stewardship, and we, we talked about that verse in First Peter, our stewardship of God's very grace to us, the stuff that he gives to us, the time, the abilities, the stuff entrusted to us by God, we're also to serve him by representing Christ to the world. We represent Christ to the world. Now, Jesus said this, and this is the Bible passage we're talking about this morning. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So my point this morning, the overarching point is, serve your world. So how are we to do that? How are we to serve our world? Now to be clear here, I'm not talking about serving the world according to the world's cultural whims. So we don't serve the world by buying into and affirming lies and things like that. Rather, we serve the world in obedience to God's word. God defines what that service looks like. His word gives us an understanding what that looks like. So then, employing the time, the abilities, the, the resources that we have, the things entrusted to by us by God, evidences of his very grace to us. Here's my first point, and it's right out of the text. Shine your light. Shine your light. It's really a two-point sermon with a bunch of sub-points, but shine your light. Now, light, according to Britannica, it's electromagnetic radiation that can be detected by the human eye. <laughs> There's so much in, uh, in the scientific definition that deals with wavelengths and spectrum, stuff that I really don't have any clue about. But, but the sense of sight, the sense of sight gives us an understanding of what light is. Light is the primary tool when we see for perceiving the world and communicating with it. Light allows us to know. Light reveals. Light allows us to live. In the Bible, light is a metaphor for goodness, for, for truth, for beauty. In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself is described as the light of men, which shines in the darkness, the darkness of a sinful and uh, corrupt world. So if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, it's because you know the light. You know the one who is the light. And you know that light because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that you have that light within you. So as the light of the world then, it is Jesus' intention for you and me to make sure that that light is visible to others. And he uses the examples like a city on a hill. It's unmistakable. There's a city on a hill. You're going to see it. But like a lamp that is lit, you, you don't block the light by putting it under a basket. Instead, you put it on a stand, right? If you want to light the room, you don't, I mean, we have electricity, of course. Cover it up. There's no point. You put it in a place where to light the room in the night. For Matthew 5 and, and other places in the New Testament, we can know what that light looks like in the life of someone who is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, someone who seeks to represent Christ in the world. 
So, the first sub-point of the shine your light heading is this. The light is service. The light is service. The verse says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. Good works, service. So what's a good work? What is a good work? Well, the answer to that question hinges on what is good. Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. That's what the Bible says, Mark 10, 18, Luke, 10, Luke 18, 19. So a good work done by you is something that is in keeping with the very character of God. So it is in keeping with his mercy. It is in keeping with God's righteousness. And in the same way that, that God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust, he, he distributes that grace across the earth irrespective of, of who is the receiver of that. He does not send rain only on those who seem to be doing well in the moment. The rain falls on the wicked and the righteous at the same time. So the, the, the act of service, that service does not take into account the worthiness of the one served. And we can see this in, in certainly in the, the medical realm, right? A doctor provides life-giving care to the criminal who was wounded in the, in, in the, in the uh, commission of a crime. The doctor will save the life, right? That said, a good work, by God's standards, cannot affirm, cannot directly facilitate that which is evil. Even, even, and we have to be clear on this, even if in our present society, culture, they would deem it so, right? Even if the world thinks this is a good thing, if it opposes God, then it is not a good thing to do that thing. For example, just clocking out later in the day for a co-worker who left early, cheating the employer, right? Or maybe, maybe the unwed teen asks for money for a ride to the abortion clinic in order to terminate the pregnancy. The world would say, what's well, good to help? A good work is meeting a need where you have the ability to help. There are personal, person-to-person -person good works. You know, and it's as simple as simply holding the door for a stranger who's got an armful of packages or, or just because they happen to be following through behind you. It doesn't matter. Maybe on your street, you help shovel the driveway of your neighbor. You have a snowblower and you, you bring it over. Giving a ride to someone who's stranded, sharing, giving away something that you have to meet a need. So there's person-to-person -person good works. And this, this is what we're called to do, to serve our world. But there's also public good works. I think it's a good work to vote to support a righteous cause. Citizens of the United States of America, use your vote. Vote for righteous causes. I'm not telling you what candidate, but to think about the causes. Think about the, the things at stake. Use your vote. Steward that. You might be advocating or organizing fellow citizens for, for a cause, adoption, crisis pregnancy centers, the care of the downtrodden, poor, marginalized. Or, or maybe on the other side, it's, it's, it's about exposing injustice and corruption for the sake of those who are being abused by it. Joining with others, maybe, not even leading them, joining with others who, who lead these causes. Now, there's no definitive biblical list of, of things that disciples must do. The thing that you will do and that you can do will be very much in keeping with your abilities and the resources at your disposal. Serve. 
The light is your service to the world. But to extend it a little further, the light is love. Love. Now, when you have love for a thing, a hobby, a sports team, an artist, your love for that thing is about what it gives to you, right? What does that do for me? There's a distinction between love for a thing that does something for me and love for people, where people are involved. What is it to love? What is it to be love? Clearly, that love should not involve injury. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me, right? No, I had to quote a song. <laughs> but in the positive, so it's not injury, right? But in the positive, it's an affection that seeks the well-being of another. Now you get this. When your children are young, your love provides, your love comforts, your love corrects, your love encourages. Having grown children now, love serves, advises, but only if asked. <laughs> right? Now we know, <laughs> we get this, we know it's easy to love those who love you in return. When you feel loved, when you are shown love, you love that love and want to give it back, right? That's, that's natural. But there's a kind of love that does not depend on receiving anything at all in return. And it's that, it's that kind of love that disciples of Jesus are to show as we serve the world. Jesus said this, continuing Matthew 5, a little further, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Easy enough, right? But I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Who's your enemy? Your enemy is anyone in any circumstance that is not loving you. And perhaps there's something in you, you've decided that person is other to you. Maybe it's somebody who simply annoys you. It could be somebody whose values do not line up with your own. Maybe there's active, an active uh, hurt towards you, somebody that belittles you or maybe seeks to injure you. Your enemy is someone who has committed a serious crime against you, someone perhaps that persecutes you for your faith. Jesus said, love your enemy. That's hard. That's really hard. How can you love someone who is unlovable? Well, the answer is in verse 45 of this section of Matthew chapter 5. So that, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not saying that loving your enemy is some kind of ticket to eternal life. It doesn't work that way. Rather, what he's saying is that this kind of love, loving your enemy, proves it's evidence that you're a child of God. It's evidence. See, this kind of love is supernatural. It's supernatural. And it's the kind of love that God has for you. God's love for you is not because you're lovable. In fact, it says this in Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you're still sinners, while we were rebellious, blasphemous enemies of God, God did not wait for us to love him. His love is first. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 1, 19. And that love he showed to us, proved, he proved to us in giving his son to die for us. That same love has been given to us. It says this in Romans 5, 5. This is true. So if you're doubting, hear the word. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You have it because you have the Spirit of God living in you. So do this because you can, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Show love for your enemy, which means that like God who loved you for your eternal good, you and me are to love our enemies for their eternal good. Love of an enemy doesn't mean affirming their evil. doesn't mean that. But it's in those moments when you encounter the enemy, what is for their eternal good? So when you're abused, annoyed, persecuted, or injured, maybe do this. Pray. Pray, God, soften the heart of my enemy. And maybe more, God, soften my heart towards the one who has declared himself to be my enemy. And I know it's so easy, so, so, so easy to say, so very hard to do, and I fail. I know that I fail this, this so often. When someone insults me, I, I get so easily indignant. When somebody's grossly negligent, maybe exposing me to risk, when somebody cheats me, th- there's this, this anger. I had an incident early, uh, late, late last year a significant amount of money was stolen out of a savings account. And every single day, it was a fraud. And it was all settled. It took three months, but it was all settled. But still, in that whole time, every single day, I, I was praying, I was thinking in precatory psalms. You know, I, I, was, I felt so violated. It's so hard. I get it. But, but, if we're going to represent Christ in the world, we must prepare for the possibility that there are enemies. You're going to be injured, you're going to be insulted, you're going to be persecuted for your faith. Decide in advance. God, help me to love my enemy. The light that we are to shine is love. Third, under this, let your light shine. Third, the light is exemplified. It's exemplified. Now, when outsiders look at the church, what do they see? Now, we can just scan the headlines, the ugly scandals with immoral pastors. They make headlines. But listen to me. If a church is healthy, they can and should publicly rebuke that leader, and they can carry on. It hurts. But it's possible to carry on. But, but if the problem in the church is division, camps, that's so hard to deal with. 
And that, brothers and sisters in Christ, undermines the collective witness of the church. Just before Jesus went to his cross, he prayed this in the company of his disciples. This is John 17. And this is where I'm taking my point from. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I, don't take them out, Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, here Jesus prayed for us, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prayed for us. That they may all be one. Jesus prayed that we would be one. And he gives the example. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That unity Jesus prayed for, that we would have oneness, just like the Father and the Son have. And then he says this, and that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the outworking of this unity is the world will actually believe that God sent the Son into the world. That's powerful, very powerful. If the church is unified in Christ, the world can believe. Now, the church in Corinth, we, we find in Scripture, they had their problems. There, there was this, uh, they had tolerated some immoral behavior on one of its members. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 5. But another problem, one of the reasons for this first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians was not a moral issue per se, what had happened is that they were divided over which teacher that they followed. Some follow Paulus, some follow Paul. And what Paul did was he set them right. He set them straight. He reminded them that the power was in the gospel message that they both proclaimed. The power was not in the messenger that God would choose. He could choose any servant he wanted. Because in the end, God is the one who brings the growth. So that was the source of their division. How Important was the unity of the church. Paul's correcting them there. Don't get this wrong. No doubt reflecting back in Jesus' prayer that we would be one. But here's what Paul says in Titus. So he's, he's giving instruction to a pastor. He says this in Titus 3.10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Saying to the one who sows, stirs up division in the church, that person is warped and sinful. And then that act is self-condemned. That's very strong language. Uh, in April, a uh, couple months, it will mark uh, 20 years for me as your senior pastor. And I would say overall, it has been joyful and rewarding to serve you. And this, I would say, is a particularly good season. But that said, uh, we've had a couple of significant rifts over the years. Some of you have been through us with that. They've been very painful. The first rift was uh, theological. And the second, what really was a, a rift over ministry strategy. Uh, now, I stand confident that those changes that we made and the decisions that we made were good. Though I will acknowledge, and I, I have uh, I was imperfect myself in the way I navigated those decisions. But as I've thought about both of those conflicts that were very destructive for us, 
The difficulties we faced as a church were exacerbated by people grumbling and then gathering into camps, opposing camps. So instead of sharing concerns and seeking unity, there was an intentional effort to divide people and kind of hold on to the us and them. Now, I realize some of you have been through those conflicts. It may sound like I'm oversimplifying, but I think that's really what it was at the root. Jesus prayed for the unity of his followers. He knew that imperfect followers would do imperfect things. That's us. That's a given. None of us are yet made perfect. But we must jealously guard our unity in Christ around the word of God. We must fight and work to resolve our differences. Now, I've observed this. Conflict in the church often, often has something to do with personal preferences. When there are doctrinal things, like it, it, we, we look at the Bible and we go, oh, that's where we should land, and it, and it seems pretty clear. But for the most part, conflict has happened around personal preferences. And I'm speaking about other churches, things like the choice of carpet or what, what gets put up on the walls, the style volume of the music, the structure of the liturgy, the length of the prayers. It could even be things that are matters of conscience for some, but not others. Some drink wine, others don't eat meat. Some dress their kids up for Halloween, others don't. Some don't celebrate Christmas because it's not in the Bible. Do we support this missionary or not? Do we invest in this church plant or revitalization or not? It could be historical stuff. Should we not study or quote Luther because he was anti-Semitic? Should we throw away the books by Jonathan Edwards because he owned slaves? I mean, these kinds of things are, are troublesome. Moral issues, hear me on this, moral issues matter. And we must hold one another what, to what the scripture clearly states. But we must, we must have charity for differing views on matters that the Bible is not clear about. The Apostle Peter wrote this, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That covering a multitude of sins isn't covering up for adultery and, and horrific public sins like that. It's like, you know, he said that thing. Or she ignored me. Or, well, you can fill in the blank. You know those feelings. It's family stuff, right? He looked at me funny. <laughs> Little kids at the dinner table. Mom, he looked at me funny. Well, yeah. Love covers a multitude of those sins. Expect imperfect people to stumble around you. Guard the unity. The Apostle Paul, of course, acknowledging the fact that people would sin against one another, said this, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We shine the light, and that is exemplified in the unity of the church, and the world sees it. The fourth one. Is it the fourth one? I think so. The light is truth. Shining the light is holding forth the truth. Now, 
Uh, you may be aware over the last couple of weeks of a controversy involving a well-known pastor. And this is a pastor, I'm not going to mention his name, one I have greatly respected for his faithful exposition of God's word. This has hurt me. It's like a bit of a gut punch. On a podcast, again, you may be aware of this, he revealed that he advised a grandmother to attend the same-sex wedding ceremony of her grandchild. And the reason he gave for the advice uh, was that the grandmother should do all she could to protect the relationship with her grandchild in the hopes of them seeking repentance. Now, I'm going to state unequivocally, I think his advice was dead wrong. Dead wrong. Now, just to be fair, this pastor doesn't believe that the church should in any way condone any kind of same-sex union. He explained himself, however, last Sunday evening to his own congregation. He tried to be very nuanced. He ended up presenting this kind of false dilemma. He seriously misapplied scripture and he labeled those who would disagree with him, even his own pastoral team, as pharisaical. Now, he's so very influential and it's just blown up on the internet and I'm praying, and I ask you to do this, pray that he rethinks his position, but I'm saddened by this, and why? Because I've learned much from this pastor, I've attended his conferences, but I'm saddened because truth matters. Truth matters. There are a thousand ways to show compassion to someone who is running away from God. I've said this before here, attending a ceremony which by its very nature is a celebration and the blessing of a commitment that God opposes is a lie. And if you don't believe it should happen attending that and being part of the witnesses and remaining silent. In the old days, can anyone show any just cause why these two may not be lawfully wed Nobody asks the question anymore. Your presence assumes, God bless you. Have a long and happy marriage. But what you're doing if you go, you're saying, I want you to be sealed in your unrepentance. I want you to be committed your whole life not to turn to the Lord. Now, I understand. I understand. Unbelievers have no regard for what the Bible says. But God owns marriage. And I've said there are a million ways you can show compassion. And I've said this before. You get the invite, and you're going to get the invite. You call them up and say, hey, I love you. I can't go and give my blessing to this. I'll still love you. We can meet for lunch. We can meet for dinner. You can come to my house. You can bring your friend. But I won't affirm it. Now, I understand. That's kind of nuanced. But truth matters. You're going to be asked to affirm something at work, to sign a paper. You're going to get the invitation. Let me ask you, will you be on the side of truth? Let your light shine. God's compassion, know this, God's compassion and his righteousness are never at odds. Even if it sounds that way to the hearer. We have a church to help us with these things. 
writing to Timothy, the Apostle Paul provided instruction on the proper organization of the church so that the word of God is not in any way undermined. He says this, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which, this is what he says, which is the church of the living God, and hear this, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We've got to hold to truth. We can hold to truth and have compassion for the lost. But we should never trade away truth so that those who perceive it feel like you have compassion. Together and individually, we must let the light shine by holding to the truth of God's word. Five. The light is speaking. So, shine the light. The light is speaking. Now, words matter. In fact, words, God's words are really the foundation for everything. I'm not overstating that. Nothing exists without God first speaking. And that we can know anything at all is because God's speech comes to our ears through the written word of God. That God speaks is the reason we can know anything. And words convey truth. They communicate the mercy of God. They communicate the grace of God when we trust them. So if we, Christians, are to serve our world and shine the light, then our words matter. They matter a lot. Our words can be the way that we communicate God's grace to those who are otherwise deaf to God's word. So first of all, our speaking must be gracious. Now we know how easy it is for words to repel others. You've received them, maybe you've spoken them. Words that curse words that demean, words that reject. Jesus said this, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. <laughs> That's strong. Insulting, demeaning cursing words says, look, that put, Jesus said, that puts you in the camp of the condemned. Our words must be gracious. Instead, what we must do, Paul writes in Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer, answer each person. Full of grace, seasoned with salt, preserving words, kind words. When someone's angry at you, as it says in Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath. But we know this, a harsh word stirs up anger. Our words need to be gracious because we represent Christ in the world. But also, speaking, our words, speaking can be a witness now, words not backed up by character, those are lying words. But one of the greatest opportunities that we have to be witnesses of the grace of God is when, is when you suffer because of your faith in Christ. Now, Peter writes that, his follow, that followers of Jesus should not be surprised by suffering. He calls it a fiery trial. Do not think it's strange that something like this is happening to you. Don't think it's strange when somebody rejects you or mocks you because of your obedience to Christ. Because 
that obedience prevents you from participating in everything that others around you would do. And then he gives this counsel. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here's the specific exhortation. Always being prepared to make a defense. And we read this together. Make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, in gracious words, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I would say this. Gentleness and respect, and I, I think this matters. Would you allow me to tell you what the Bible says about this? I understand we feel like they're a, they're a person in a burning house and we've got to rescue them. There's a sense of urgency, but if they say, I don't want to hear it. I'm of the mind that you can't impose it. That's between you and God, but they say, no thanks, just keep your Bible to yourself. It may be one of those scenarios where Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before the swine. I'm not calling them swine, but he's just using that as an illustration, right? If they're not going to hear it, if they're rejecting it, it's like they're not the audience for you. Now, in this verse, Peter isn't giving instructions on debating the apologetic arguments here. He's not how to defend the moral or the cosmological or teleological reason for the existence of God. That's not what's going on here. The context is suffering. When you are reviled, it is natural but sinful to respond back with reviling. But when you suffer fearlessly and graciously, it's a curiosity. What's going on? So Peter's saying, be ready. Be ready because Christ is your Lord and you want to honor him in those moments. Be ready. He's not saying go out in the street corner. Maybe you're compelled to do that and start preaching. But he's talking about you're going to suffer. And what are you going to say when somebody says to you, what's the deal? Be ready. Be ready to speak about your hope. Be ready to, to speak about what makes it possible for you to endure the reviling. What makes it possible for you to endure being ostracized, even physically abused. We let our light shine in speaking because we understand where we would be individually apart from Christ. We get it, right? And because we know God has not counted our own sins against us, God has counted those sins against Christ because we've trusted him. Because of that, we have something to say. See, we're not speaking to people, God saved me because I'm particularly righteous. <laughs> That's a message of self-righteousness. So, we're going to say, you know what? I'm a vile sinner who would have been condemned apart from the fact that Jesus died in my place and I trust that he did it. And that alone makes me acceptable to God. You're expressing something of humility to say, I'm unworthy. And the only difference between me and you is that I believe in him who saves me. So we have something to say. Now Paul, speaking about the ministry of the apostles, I, I think it's true of the church. 
He says in 2 Corinthians that God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. We've been reconciled to God. So we have that message, right? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. I say this in, in the membership seminar as we think about what is the local church? We're a bunch of citizens of the kingdom of heaven gathered together. But this isn't the kingdom of God. This isn't the kingdom of heaven. What we are is like a little embassy sitting in this evil generation. We come together as citizens of the kingdom of God. We're, we're at this ambassadorial outpost of the kingdom of God because what we know is going to happen is Jesus our king is going to come back. And so we get together and remind each other Jesus is our king and he's coming back. And we help each other to, to face the world that is out there. We help each other to be these ambassadors. We help each other to serve the world that is around us. We help each other to, to love the enemy. We help each other to be ready to say something. We're ministers of reconciliation. That's what the world should see. So let's be ready. Let your light shine before others. And this is the second point, and very briefly, to glorify God. To glorify God. We let our light shine in all of those ways to glorify God. Glory, that's the New Testament word, doxa. It's brightness, it's splendor, it's radiance, it's majesty. And there's nothing that we can do to make God glorious. He is already absolute radiance. He is already infinite magnificence. We can't add to that. But for us to glorify God, it's to do something that points to or reveals the glory that God already has. And letting our light shine through works of service, love, demonstrated unity, truth, and speaking. Well, Jesus said it. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Through Christ, God has saved us. He's set us apart. As disciples of Jesus, we have not been immediately taken out of this world because you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a purpose to fulfill, and it is this. The light that we shine testifies to the light that God is. The light that we shine testifies to the light that God is. That is why we exist, brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus, fully devoted followers of Christ. Everything that we have been given is so that we might represent Christ in the world. And may God grant us the grace to do that and be faithful until he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this exhortation. Uh, God, all of us uh, feel uh, small. All of us feel like we fall short. I certainly speak for myself. God, we're asking that you would strengthen us to be light in all the ways that we've explored this morning. Strengthen each of us. Help us help one another to be light so that we return glory to you. And Lord, we know that we do not affect the outcome of our witness. We do not affect the outcome of loving enemies. We do not affect the outcome of service. We, we don't. But we simply do so because it's a good enough reason all on its own that it would bring glory to your name. So keep us faithful in that until Jesus, our Lord and Savior, returns. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.